HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. In the Sauce is brought to you by Oatly, the vegan plant-based oat milk originally from Sweden that's now making their oat milk on this side of the Atlantic. For more information, go to Oatly.com. That's O-A-T-L-Y.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with James Richardson, founder of Premium Growth Solutions, a strategic planning consultancy for early-stage CPG brands. Dr. Richardson has helped dozens of brands with their strategic planning, including brands owned by Coca-Cola, Hershey, General Mills, and Kraft, as well as emerging brands like Once Upon a Farm, Mother Kombucha, and Rebel Creamery. He also hosts his own podcast, Startup Confidential, which I subscribed to the minute that he announced it. I've learned so much about building my company from James through LinkedIn, his newsletter, and industry publications like Food Navigator. And I think there's a book coming down the pike pretty soon, which we will talk about. Um, But I, for one, have pre-registered or signed up to get it ASAP. Uh, James, I'm so happy to have you on the show today. Welcome. Thanks, Allison. Glad to be here. So um, if you are a listener of In the Sauce, we do a little bit of sort of your life story in five minutes. It's a weird little world of CPG, and I know that you began your career as a cultural anthropologist. So I just would love a little background on, as a kid, if you were into brands, if you were into entrepreneurship, like kind of what got this whole thing started and how you made the jump from, although I can see it, cultural anthropology to CPG. So as a child, I was into Dungeons and Dragons. Let's be clear. <laughs> okay, this is and a little bit awkward. like that, right? <laughs> <laughs> as I say in the preface uh, to my but my book, uh, my my earliest connection to this industry was actually stocking shelves at a grocery store in Pemaquid, Maine, mm-hmm. uh, where our family used to spend the summer. That was my high school job. Yep. And they did a reset of that store every Memorial Day. Uh-huh. And they reset it 
for all the rich boating crowd that came in. Right. So there were like certain things on the shelves from October through May, and then it would come Memorial Day and they would make it a completely sort of different demographic. Pretty much the, yeah, the shopper demographic changed massively and um, it would go from like six feet of Budweiser yeah. and Michelob to two feet of Budweiser and Michelob and four feet of St. Pauli Girl yep. uh, and you name it, all the imports. Very cool. I mean, actually very much applying anthropology to to food and the grocery store, which makes a lot of sense. It's like Yeah, so I... I've actually stocked shelves. That's where I learned about the concept of the facing before I even knew what it meant strategically. Um, and then I went when it, then, uh, but honestly, before I did that, I actually worked at a at an ice cream kiosk selling hand, uh, handmade ice cream in New Hampshire called Annabelle's Ice Cream. They still run ice cream shops, but their retail business didn't go anywhere. So I had this weird connection to the premium end of CPG from my my high school jobs <laughs> but and then i proceeded to completely forget about that um as we all do and then i i went on the academic track hardcore for 14 years right and so when you were cultural anthropologisting what <laughs> what kind of research did you do and did you were you like a clifford gertz who kind of like went into those places and kind of became part of the community or like did you travel a lot what was what was your focus so yeah i i was trained in the gertzian sort of approach but for listeners who have no idea what we're talking about um cultural anthropology in the united states is you know at least in the 90s for sure was um a, a good portion of the graduate students were trained in uh, linguistics and symbolic analysis and and uh, that's exactly what I was focused on as well. But I did my fieldwork in southern India. I did it in the late 90s um, and almost got myself killed a few times. But aside from that, <laughs> I was able to learn the local language, Tamil. Uh, did all my interviews in the local language. Um, but my, my research topic has nothing to do with what I do now. Right, clearly. Um, although I do bring it up... Um, just for entertainment value in my podcast, because the, the, the core thing about it was really studying impression management, which is an old discipline in social psychology. And I, I sort of married the two things, which is symbolic analysis that comes out of American anthropology and uh, the work that Irvin Goffman did in social psychology um, on masking and how people handle stigma. And so my, my dissertation was on... Uh, a group of middle-class Dalits, or we would know them as untouchables, but that's politically incorrect, um, and how they navigated urban Indian life, uh, trying to smoke and mirror their way through, so that no one, so that when no one would ask the question, they never wanted asked. Right. Interesting. So. Identity and, and stigma and things, those are the things that fascinated me, um, but also how people use religion as a way to use morality as a big middle finger to elites, um, which is a global thing. You can find that in the U.S., you can find that everywhere. Yes. So. <laughs> <laughs> and how did that all, I mean, so you did that for 14 years, you were doing research, you were, I'm assuming you were teaching? I didn't do a lot of teaching. Before I jumped off the ship, I did I did some in graduate school and I taught a little bit postdoc, but I 
I jumped off the train pretty early before I even had a tenure track position. I was no longer interested in in getting tenure in my field for a bunch of reasons that won't interest the listeners, but had to do with where the field was going. So I enjoyed my topic, but I wasn't interested in being a professor. And then how did, I mean, how did, because, you know, for me, I, I, I mean, anyone who listens to this regularly knows I really like theory. And I, I like it when there's this like cross between theory and practice and you can sort of take these sort of larger sort of systemic structural things and apply them to your product and your brand. And, you know, I, 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 so I'm excited about like the marriage of all of the things that you were just talking about, but how did you actually then go, did you just completely abandon your career and go start working at a company or like, how did you, how did you make the jump into this weird little world? Oh, I, (laughs) yeah. I mean, I describe it as a, um, jumping off a passenger train with no plan at high speed. Um, and to mix metaphors, I would also describe it as a very bad divorce, but, but not the nasty acrimonious kind, but the kind where you never talk to the person again. Right. Yeah. Which is actually even worse emotionally. (laughs) Uh, Depending. Yeah. I mean, I have different thoughts. (laughs) You spent that, I haven't been divorced, but you spend that much time with someone or something. Yeah. Um, and then you just never, you just, I'm kind of, that's sort of my personality. When I make a decision, it's usually fairly extreme. Um, so I, I just, I had to part ways. So I went into market research. I was recruited by a firm out in Seattle where I live, uh, called the Hartman group. And they were higher, they were looking for anthropologists like out of academia. They wanted really, really smart, clever folks to do ethnographic research for their, client base, um, which was growing fast. So, uh, and at that time in the early, this is the early 2000s, at that time, the ad industry was hiring people like me like crazy. Yeah, which makes sense. I, I get uh, it. Yeah. And that battle went on for quite a while. Like, does the market research company have anthropologists? And then they can charge more to their clients who then stuff the reports down the agency's throat as the agency say, no, 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 thanks. We don't want your research report. We do it all in house. We have our own anthropologist that went on for about 10 years until they won. Okay. But it's nice <laughs> because they have, were, they have more money. You know, you were being pulled in a tug of war, right? <laughs> well, I didn't see that going on because I was hidden from that, but I, I eventually caught on before the great recession that, Oh shit. Because um, they were started, the ad agencies, WPP, and all the big guys were buying up boutiques like the Harvin Group. I, I'm sure they called Harvey multiple times to try to buy his company. I'm sure because they just re- they really just wanted to buy the talent. So, but he never he had no interest in selling. So, you know, I think my career was sort of caught up in that. Um, but what was interesting to me was that uh, I didn't find an I found the potential of anthropological thinking in market research was huge, and I had a lot of fun doing it when the client would give give me freedom. But I quickly moved into consulting because I realized that I needed to, if we were, if I was going to take the kind of thinking, the kind of big picture theory, and connecting it to empirical reality and and the things that excited me as a intellectual when I was doing that full time. I was going to have to work with with the top people in in the public companies. And so and the reason was that they're the only ones who actually make decisions. 
So market research companies where I work, you know, they sell into consumer insights managers. Um, those people make no decisions. I, I don't even know that they make the decision on um, when they leave the office, honestly, not to exaggerate. So it, they're very low-level people. So <laughs> it wasn't the best fit in terms of what my brain could do and who I'm talking to. So when you started consulting, did you just like call up Kraft and Pepsi and General Mills and be like, hey, it's James. I'm it certainly wasn't me. Right. I'm not, I wasn't as smooth as I am right now on this microphone. Right. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> it was a long time ago. Right. But no, it, it was the owner of the, the Hartman Group. So, I mean, he uh, is an extremely charismatic guy uh, and he saw the potential in the ideas that we were creating for our white papers and other things for marketing. And so what we actually did was FedEx bombed all the CEOs. Very smart. Cool. With, with free white papers. And I was often the author. And then I became the exclusive author. Um, so we basically did, you know, cont- what they call content marketing today. Um, we did it old school style. We printed it in the office on glossy paper, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, he would he got the doors open and then I supplied the content. I and my colleagues, not just me. Um, and are you still and, working with the big companies or, I mean, cause I met you. Well, the through, funny thing yeah. is that we did, we did literally this FedEx bomb thing. We did it with, um, the CMO of Kraft in 2007 in like spring of 2007. Right. And they had just hired Irene Rosenfeld to come turn around that completely effed up company. Right. Uh, which had been owned by the, as the listeners may not know, was owned by Altria which is the, re- the rebrand of RJR Morris, the asshole tobacco company from hell. So uh, so they had spun out of that and now needed to get, like, they had been used as an ATM for the tobacco giant. Okay, so there was no investment in anything. So Irene was brought in from Frito-Lay, which is one of the most, one of the most talented CPG entities on planet Earth is in Plano, Texas, folks. Um, so even if you do natural foods, that's not a group you want to mock. Yeah. No, we have a few. <laughs> we have a few guests. Um, yeah. Recently, we had um, Fed, who's the chief customer officer at Chobani, and he he grew up at Frito Lay, um, and the training there is outstanding, and you know the, they're 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 top notch. We had done ad hoc stuff, but honestly, I think it was the owner of the Hartman Group who did it all because we were a little young and goofy. I mean, our early 30s, we weren't like executive facing material. <laughs> but once we got to 2007, um, anyways, we, we, we contacted the CMO who worked for Irene and she was very interested because they were, they wanted some completely new eyes to the company and, and they wanted to hire, they, they wanted more than BCG. They'd already hired BCG to come in and do the, the basic the management consultant parade, <laughs> which, you know, those are like multi-year mega operational sort of cleanup job projects. And so they, they were doing that, but they wanted someone, they wanted a group that was going to help craft think five to 10 years out because they know the organization was so bloody slow that if they didn't bring somebody in with a future leaning or perspective. So, you know, they didn't know who the hell we were, but they FedEx bombed. Uh, we FedEx bombed their office, got the got an initial phone call, set of phone calls, and then we got a big meeting. And the rest is history. Well, it took off from me. I mean, we did four or five years of work all over the organization, a lot of, a lot at Nabisco. Um, 
and uh, you know that was my training ground into moving out of consumer behavioral research right so and now for the, the most part the the companies that you work with are more emerging yes or is it st- is it sort of like half and half like well you- we skipped over a little bit of my career so the last uh-huh. 10 years yes <laughs> the last 10 years i was well the last 10 years i was doing mostly advice um strategic planning advice to general managers and folks. So once we got the craft thing under our resume, we were able to sell up the chain even farther. Right. Uh, and so we just started sticking our neck out for crazy stuff. Very scrappy. So we had we have no resume whatsoever to be selling what we were selling, but we didn't give a shit. Um, and I, that was what I liked about the Hartman Group was that, you know, we just decided we were smart people and why not? So, um, and I was always the one who got the special projects. So for the last so for the last 10 years, you know, I was working with a whole bunch of clients across the country and they would always hand us the tough brand, the brand that um had drove it, driven into a ditch, the brand that they wanted and but they wanted to turn around cuz it was high profit. Um and they didn't like the ideas they were getting from the usual rack. And I swear to god in CPG for the big firms around Chicago, it's like three or four freaking consulting firms that they kept hiring just again and again. They're like on autopilot. And so we would always magically find the person who was like, I'm not using those people. Fuck those people. I want a new set of eyes. Oh, Hartman Group. Wow, these people seem unusually nuanced and smart. Now, I know they don't have a typical consulting background, but I don't care. So we would get in that way kind of through the side entrance to every single company uh, and did a lot of work for corporate strategy folks, post-integration on natural organic brands. And then the last five years we became, I my team specifically when I was at the Hartman Group, focused on early stage growth dynamics. So we had a couple projects, you know, I can't go into too much detail, but they allowed us to um, deconstruct through d- data science as well as case study research that you, you know, business school style case study research, uh, how a specific group of early stage natural organic companies um, got $200 million in, in 10 years or less. Wow. Which is like um, the... Which is very right. unusual. Yeah. So, it, and I, and most of them made it to $100 million, and I'm talking retail sales, so $100 million, um, out of the register in less than a decade and we they're all very famous brands most of them we already know right now we know them <laughs> so and when you say i mean you researched that and then you you were able to come up with a couple of like common denominators among them or yeah well you know? we we created i mean for a couple of our clients we literally created massive powerpoint deck reverse engineered sort of here's how you build a brand here's how you build a premium price cbg brand in today's marketplace with all the different pathways and everything, very extensive work. Anyways, um, and that was sold in at great expense to a couple companies who now have that material um, and use portions of it in their work. So I do, I want to get to, because I I always end up running out of time because I have so many (laughs) questions. And I really know, I I know that the people listening, especially the founders listening, are going to want to know you know, all of the advice that you have to offer. And, and, you know, this is, I think, a really good starting point because basically you're doing that research kind of gave you, in, in my, you know, from my understanding, sort of a roadmap 
so that you can easily see when brands like me and you know emerging brands go off of go off it and you can help us kind of stay on it yeah i mean i think at a very high level it it, it it's given me some of the theory and the diagnostic tools to help figure out where people are because i I, I've done the pattern analysis so I can see things a lot quicker than, than the new founder who doesn't have a lot of perspective outside their own company and why should they? Which is awesome. So we're going to take a little break and when we come back, we're going to talk about all the things that we need. And this is when everyone takes out their pens. From that pattern analysis, how we can be maybe, you know, one of those brands that they're talking about in 10 years from now. And we'll be right back. In the Sauce is brought to you by Oatly, the vegan plant-based oat milk originally from Sweden that's now making their oat milk on this side of the Atlantic. About 30 years ago, in a small town in Sweden, a scientist invented oat milk, and everyone thought he was totally crazy. But remember, back then, vegans were weirdos on the fringes of society. Unlike today, when vegans are everywhere and include some of the world's most famous weirdos and non-weirdos on Earth. Actually, it is true that today more and more people in the U.S. and around the world are starting to understand the benefits of eating and drinking plants so their bodies feel good and the planet can cope better with the impact we humans place on it. So here's a sort of deep question. If 30 years ago people thought oat milk was a ridiculous idea, imagine how different people's beliefs about food could be in 30 years from now. Are we going to be looking back on our barbaric meat-eating ancestors of the early 2000s? Anyway, since this is an ad for Oatly, I should mention that one easy way to go more plant-based is just to switch from cow's milk to oat milk. It tastes really great, it foams really well, and you can just ask the baristas at Haven's Kitchen how popular it is. To find out more than you'd ever want to know about oat milk, go to Oatly.com. That's O-A-T-L-Y.com. Or look for Oatly on Instagram at O-A-T-L-Y. Hi, I'm back with James Richardson from Premium Growth Solutions. Okay, getting into the nitty gritty. I think I've read everything that you've written, at least that you've put on LinkedIn or that's been in Food Navigator or on your newsletter. And I'd say that if I had to sort of come up with the number one piece of advice that you have, and there's a lot of advice on there, um, it's make a strategic plan. Um, and I, I, I think that... A lot of founders, we think we have a strategic plan or we think we have a plan. Um, but I'd like you to talk a little bit more about why they're so critical and, and what, you know, maybe we're not all going to be able to work with you, but what some sort of like components are that are really key um, going into it, you know, and, and when we should make one and, 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 you know, what the components should be. Well, first of all, thank you for devouring my content. Um, I do devour your content. Uh, I appreciate, I appreciate <laughs> the attention um, and hope that it continues to uh, be useful for everyone. In terms of strategic plans, I, um, I, I think honestly, just any plan in the first couple of years is what what founders need. And by plan, I mean you have to set some kind of revenue target, even if it sounds nutty. Mm-hmm. 
um, as long as you vetted that you do have a pathway to produce that many units, you know, in the first couple of years, just laying out that basic math forces you then to say, well, how do I get there? And then that forces another set of math, right? The which will, come, which the will be production related right. almost entirely in the beginning. Um, it does not, you don't need some, you don't need my brain to get yourself to a quarter million dollars in sales in natural organic foods. You, you, you don't because the retailers are, as you found out, the retailers are um, very interested in onboarding these higher end products. Um, unfortunately, the failure rate is high enough that they're always onboarding new ones, but they all, the, the sector they believe in. Um, so getting on the shelf uh, is easier than it, than it ever was. I mean, if you, talk to the, if you talk to the people who ran these companies in the 90s, the shit that they had to, I mean, to go through to get into Kroger would just make you want to pull your hair out um, compared to now. <laughs> so just a basic plan of revenue targets and then some operational feasibility now, when you um, talk about the analysis revenue, to support that, I think right. that's all you really need in the first quarter million dollars is sales. When I so, say strategic so not, plan. So you don't mean like a bottom up sort of like we think we're going to open these doors and have this many units turning per week. And, you know, well, no, I think a bottom up is what you do need to do from the very beginning, just because that that allows you to know, oh, shit, I need this much cash if I'm actually going to produce that. So you do need to do that much. What I don't know that you need is the sexy sort of strategic plan which I help clients with um, once you get a little more set right once the business is humming and starting to grow consistently um, and that usually takes a couple years honestly it could take three or four depending on how you're capitalized depending on whether this is actually your full-time gig <laughs> so um, so but if you don't set up even you know if you don't set any kind of plan with the revenue targets, I don't. I mean, it all just becomes kind of like a badly run. I don't know. Side hobby is how I would describe it, and that that doesn't that just wastes your time. It wastes your money too. Yeah, because you um, don't even know where if you're doing well. I mean, you're it just you're just kind of operating in the dark a little bit. Well, I think the challenge is that um, the planning process, like if you do have enough cash to wing it. You know, the challenge is that you haven't forced yourself to really understand your unit economics and see things where, uh, where things are headed. Um, and I do think that, you know, in that journey to say quarter million dollars in sales, that can be, that's very challenging for people who are new to the industry. I think most of your head is stuck in operations and it probably should be. Yeah, you're trying you, to figure out it, how to make the thing. That you well, can't. to me that, yeah, I mean... To me, it's the journey out of the kitchen. Right. Yep. Exactly. No, it's true. I mean, I we're a perfect so, case in point. You know? You're not like you're not even in the consumer packaged goods industry right. till you're doing a quarter million at least because you haven't been forced to go work with a co-man. Right. No, it's true. It's true. And then I mean, so. I feel like it's funny that in a way, like that two fifty and then that five hundred and then a million, like those are real for some reason. Those numbers actually keep coming up like they are they're they are really their benchmarks um so at 250 basically you figured out or you're 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 now kind of moving it out of wherever the basement the you know the the you know co-working kitchen in our case you know the cooking school then you kind of like figure out how you're going to make this sort of professionally with like certain safety and quality 
you know, constraints and, and starting to look maybe at the costs of your things and trying to make it more efficient and all that. And, and then you get to that 500 and, and, you know, I mean, I, I feel like you have, you'll know this number, like what percentage of the companies that start even get to that 500? And then wh- where's the big drop off? Like, and where's the big sort of. So problem? yeah, at the, um, I talk about this somewhere and I can't remember where, not in my white papers, but the, uh, um, the cutoffs we actually measured at the Hartman group during that overfunded crazy research that we did for five years. Um, and the cutoffs we did in huge, we basically studied them in huge data sets. So the half million dollar cutoff, which is real, was really a mil- measured as a million in cash registers. So POS, um, that is about it. That, you know, you lose about 80% of the companies there. And, and this is just natural organic food and beverage. So it, so it um, is very feasible that you could start a, a company, get to a million dollars in through the register sales, and that's it. I mean, actually, for 80% of the companies, that's it. Yeah, so for... So 20%... When you look, when you look in that, that group, if you do a mm-hmm. snapshot in that group of yep. companies... About 50% of them are actually declining in sales. Can you believe that? Yeah, that's scary. They're basically tanking. Right. And the other 50% are growing. Right. Uh, well, about 40% and then 10% are kind of stagnant. So it, it's a very bipolar, hellish, I call it the death funnel. It, it sucks. It sucks. It sucks because you're basically either doing okay or it's a disaster. And that is a relationship that, that has many different factors empirically. But the biggest one is that you have no awareness. You have an unstable relationship with your consumers. Um, and depending on how you went to market and how well that was thought out, uh, you, you, know, you may have essentially shot yourself in the foot financially. There's very little financial wiggle room during that journey. And that's what I found out as I went out on my own and worked with companies and immersed myself in dozens and dozens of P&Ls. You know, the, there's no financial wiggle room with a lot of these guys. And so it takes, that's why I give my, I give my 10 mistakes that you should never make webinar now for free on my website. I just give it away because it's like, this is just, these mistakes should just not be made. There's so many other advanced mistakes you can make. <laughs> The basic ones should be avoided. Like the table stakes keep, mistakes. They keep getting yeah. made, you know. Um, one of them is not having a plan about production, Allison. Like, so that some of these guys, they actually, the reason the number is declining, Allison, is not because there's no demand. It's because they went out of stock and the retailer said, bye bye No, I mean, <laughs> I know a lot of people that can't, that, that can't get their product made one because they go out of stock and the retailer says bye-bye but also because they run out of cash to make the product that they need and and so and and so that all goes back in a way to the plan like if i'm if i for the people listening i'm you know let's say i'm at that 250 mark and i figured out you know okay i'm either gonna like build this production facility which, you know, we have a whole other discussion about, or I'm going to go to a co-packer. Um, and now I need to make a strategic plan to get to the next tranche, essentially. In that plan, you you do need some sort of go-to-market strategy. Is that kind of what you're I, saying? I would, yeah, I think you should. And that's why I try to give as much away as I can. Um, 
you know, because to, to folks, because there's thousands of companies in that revenue. And what is a go-to-market strategy other than we want to get stores and we want <laughs> and we want to get Whole Foods? Like, how? Right. So how, I how think do you break I think down? in I think in the echo chamber, uh, in the echo chamber of the premium end of the universe, especially in a city like New York. I mean, I think it seems like there's a couple paths and everyone seems to be walking on them, and that empirically may be the case. But what I encourage people to do is to get their head out of all the babble about accounts because yes you're selling to a retail account but you need to step back and you have to ask yourself um especially once you've sold a quarter million dollars first you should have some knowledge about who your fans are and if you don't that's when i i yell at people and say come on you're a small company um you have no excuse to have distance between you and your end users you should be talking to these people it's so you funny be calling I, them I, however yeah. you can get in touch with them find out what's going on with their experience of the food it's funny i read i i read something that you wrote and that very day i did an instagram poll you know because we we have a lot of assets you know we we have there's so many different ways to skin the cat and even like if you see olive oils out there like some of them are going with like luxury some of them are going with mediterranean some of them are going with functionality it i think what we're talking about here is figuring out why people early on dig your thing and leaning hard into it right and and i think that once you get those early glimmers then the real thinking can start with what they call go to market strategy because you know as I talk about my book, there's no need to go to Whole Foods depending on what your innovation is. You can launch at Kroger. You can launch at um, Stop and Shop, for Christ's sake. You know, depending on what you have. But you don't know what you have until you talk to consumers and figure out the, what actual repeat buyers think about your product versus what you, the creator, think. And those are often not the same thing. So using us as an example, it became very clear that people did not really care all that much that we were vegan and gluten-free. They they didn't really care about much. Uh, the, the resounding word over and over and over was easy. Easy, 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 easy. It came up in every single answer. There were about 700 people, you know, who answered the story in one way or another. And so, you know, we, we are leaning hard into easy, you know, like uh, the other stuff is relevant, but that's clearly why people love us. And I guess my question is then what? Like then okay, now I know that or I have an idea, right, of that that, that I need to I need to focus on that attribute. How does that influence where I sell it or you know how how does that influence my strategy? So I think once you've figured out the 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 consumer outcomes people really associate with your product um, it, it tells you, um, for one thing, it tells you how sophisticated your product is in your category, right? And I think this can be done very, in a very nuanced way, or it can be done scrappily, which I have no problem with. But if you want to know, really, really understand whether you should be launching at Whole Foods or getting there early on, versus backing your way into natural and specialty, you have to place yourself on the trend cycle and on the, in a continuum of sophistication in your category based on the, what those early fans are telling you um, who keep buying you. 
And that, so that chunk, that aspect of consumer understanding can help you discern what I call your early channel mix. And channel mix is one of the key elements of, of go-to-market strategy and CBG. And it's not a phrase I hear a lot about at New Hope walking the booths because that's a, that's a geeky ass internal phrase of CBG. In fact, I, one of the first sessions I did when I went out on my own, that was the big aha for the founders was the notion that the concept of a channel. Now, are you talking about Amazon direct natural? I'm talking about classes of trade, right? I'm talking about, so I'm talking about the way that specific, um, kinds of retail format cluster together in a taxonomy, right? So you have supermarkets, club stores, and you have super centers. And those differences matter an immense amount to how your product is going to get perceived, its pricing power, um, the, the, the value of something like convenience, right? And uh, versus the value of, you know, a product that's much more um, sort of like Siggy's was 15 years ago, selling you like a like an overly authentic Icelandic yogurt <laughs> it was just not sweet <laughs> at all. Um, you know that had to launch in the natural specialty right. channel. Got it. I see what you're saying. It, it it absolutely had to because it needed to it needed to attract a bunch of people who were going to make a whole bunch of trade offs. Right. If you don't, if your product is selling without like making forcing any kind of trade off, like Skinny Pop then you, why would you waste your time launching today at Whole Foods? I mean, there aren't enough stores. So, you know, um, you'll get, maybe you would get there, but like today's, whatever equivalent a skinny pop is, should be going straight to Kroger. So that's really interesting because... <laughs> and straight to Costco. Right. And I, I mean, I actually, and I think that, you know, I think that it used to be a very, you know, even a few years ago, it was very much like you you stayed in natural, you saturated in natural, and then you moved to like one conventional, but they were the quote unquote progressive conventional. And then you moved from progressive conventional. And I think a lot of that's changing. But at the same time, I know that you always talk about sort of which we've been very much following the playbook of also thanks to our relationship with Whole Foods, which is just really get like ubiquitous in one region. Let, let what you call, let it soak in a, in a region before you start going wide. And I think part of the reason why it's hard for brands like mine to launch in those larger retailers is, you know, to them, a small sampling sort of test is 250 stores, 350 stores. Like, you know, it's, it's a lot. It's a, and it's a lot for us, you know, if there's consumer education that needs to happen and, and we need to be going around making sure everything's okay. You know, we, we have no control and it's, it's kind of scary. So balancing the, that soaking sort of like knowing your, knowing your consumer, getting them really bought in. At one point you talk about, um, I like all these steps. First, they need to notice it. Then they need to think about it. Then they need to react to it. Then they need to try it. And then they become loyal. And that's a, that's a long, that's like a long process. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is, it's a, you know, it's the, it, it's longer for someone like Siggy's than it is for Skinny Pop. And that's why I keep coming back to, you have to under you have to understand how innovative your thing actually is, and that has to be not defined by you, the founder, 
but defined by the marketplace. Well, I so, think in our case, you know, people are used to, and, and everyone who's listened to me has heard me say it, people are used to buying sauce in the middle of the store. They're not necessarily used to buying sauce in the refrigerated section. And they're certainly not used to buying sauce in pouches. Um, so we have two different sort of like, I, I think of them as assets, but they're also obviously liabilities because those things are the same. Um, but, you know, it does, we are going to have to, we are going to take a longer time for people to know what the hell it is. Um, yeah, well, well, you're right. in a situation where you are trying to essentially create a new category um, in chilled, chilled shelving, and, and that's asking for a change in shopper behavior, and that's always going to take longer. Um, just like the Perfect Bar, it took them a long time to, to get any kind of volume going out of the dairy case. Um, when they only had like five UPCs up at the top, right? I remember when they launched. No, I, and we're still like we're next to them in a lot of places. It's like the right. we, like they put you kind That's of. That's like, bizarre. Well, because like, well, huh? Like, where does this go? Let's try it there. You know, and it, you know, and and part of our job is helping. You know, if they want it, the buyer to really understand like how to bundle us with other things or what we go better next to or all of that stuff. And it's different for every store. Um, one of the other things I just wanted to mention, because I really liked this point that you made also about strategic plans are, you know, and again, I like, I don't know that we've gone through like the details of what the components should be, but I, I have a bunch of different friends who have co-founders. I don't. Um, and all of them, the f the fights and the arguments and and like the the emotional crap that comes up um almost always is a function of not having a plan because one person decides one day you know what we should do we should do this and the other person's like well i don't want to do that and had there been a plan in place that whole thing would have been sort of you know it wouldn't have happened and there wouldn't be all this like emotional sort of baggage it might happen anyways, but the plan at least makes it, it gives you the condition uh, possibility that it might not happen. I mean, I can tell you that the plan, a plan document isn't going to, and it is not going to end that kind of fighting. But it, if you have people who've, in a small team, who said, you know, no, we are going to, we're going to follow this thing and we're going to see what happens. And then we're at least going to diagnose the performance of the business based on the assumptions in the plan. To me, the, the actual, whether you meet the targets or not, is less the issue than the fact that you put numbers down, business metrics down, and then the existence of the metrics forces a more, much more rational discussion at the end of the year if you didn't meet the goals of, you know, okay, then how do we diagnose what went wrong? Now, that's my specialization, as you might guess, is the diagnosis. And then, and then I work with teams on prescribing the solution. Usually, though, they can come up with the tactical solution much better than I have once they know what the problem right. is. And that's part of the issue. So I've and, used and they, this, But misdiagnosing right. the problem is super freaking easy when you're new to this industry. Well, yeah. So I've, I've, used, this, I've used this example in past podcasts because I, I don't know anyone who's actually making this product. And I don't ever want anyone to think I'm using their product as an example. Yeah. But I, I'm, let's say, going to invent a cookie that is made with black bean powder. And um, my category is cookies. You know, I'm basically saying to the buyers, you know, cookies are great. People love it. But, you know, people are also anti-sugar and anti-flour and they want more protein and they want more fiber. So 
in your sort of best case scenario, I, you know, I, I start making these cookies and I, and I get them out there and I'm starting to see traction. And, um, would I, at some point, my strategic plan would then be, okay, next year I want to do half a million in sales. The year after I want to do a million, the year after I want to do two and then five and then break down, okay, if I have to do a half a million, that means that I have to sell this amount on Amazon, this amount direct, this amount in stores, and then kind of go through the stores. Like going, is that how you would sort of I think that's the operational plan. Right. Okay. So that's the back half of the business plan, which is, okay, I have my strategy now. How the hell do I actually like do this? What's the, what's the connect the dot picture that makes this happen? And what else would you advise me to do if I were that black bean cookie company? I, I think the strategic part, the front half of the business plan has to be, um, a one line statement. That's what I help people develop if they don't have one already. Um, and that is a, it's it's called a competitive strategic statement. That's what I call it. And it basically consists of four things. Um, obviously, a statement of your category. Um, and in some cases, that's the most innovative thing because you might be making up a new one. Um, other times, like in this case, it's just cookies. <laughs> uh, and then what you're you're then you are um, basically making a you're basically positing a theory. That's what strategy is. Strategy is a theory. In this case, it's a behavior-based theory about how you're going to source dollars um, onto your PL competitively from other categories or from other brands in the cookie category. Now, that, that distinction right there is a huge one to figure out because you may, through your consumer research, find out, this is why you have to do it, that there's like a crazy number of people coming to your black bean cookie who don't actually, they weren't eating cookies. Right, they're before. not coming from other cookies. Right, they're not coming from Oreo. Right. Right, Th- these are the, this is why you want to talk to people early on, because um, in the minute that you can quantify a few of these brass tack things, the better. Uh, because if you find that you're getting, and this is not unusual, by the way, the, um, that you're pulling a ton of people from outside the actual merchandising category, that wildly affects what I call the four P's of strategic planning are the four P's that guide your execution. You know, because if you find out that it's not a bunch of cookie monkeys that are just switching to black beans, but it's actually just other people who, I don't know, they're, um, yeah, they've, they they've they become, they're trying to reduce carbs or God knows what else. And they were eating ice cream or they were eating this and they just, boom, suddenly your cookie for whatever reason is just hit this vein. Um, and the vein is not gluten avoidance. It's something much more interesting than that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what you want to, if you can see that there's behavior flowing in for that reason, now you, the business person, get to, dis- you actually, you don't have total control of the consumer, but when you're small, you can decide who you want to focus on serving. So part, the final part of that strategy statement is what's the audience that I want to serve? And that's going to be based on you understanding the, the, the key outcomes and the attributes of your product that are exciting that audience. And to me, it's all about who's buying it uh, repeatedly. And um, repeatedly means more than twice. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it means they've, they've inserted the brand as a kind of a habit. And even though they're not buying you maybe on every trip, it, they're just rotating you in, right? And when you can find those people and understand why they like you, that helps you figure out, oh, well, this is how I want to go and attack the marketplace 
to get more of those people. Which goes to like, I want right? to attack it. I mean, to, <laughs> right. correct me if I'm wrong, which goes to like, all right, I'm going to talk about the functionality of the fiber and the cookie. Right, so this starts to get into, into your online or... communications, your offline communications. Uh, it could affect the kind of events you show up with your booth, right? Um, it almost cascades into every single executional decision. A hundred But it's, a lot, it's about a lot more than which banners you want to sell at, for sure. And I think the... I mean, one of the reasons that I don't push my approach unless the founder has fairly well funded before a million dollars in trailing revenues is because they often don't have the money to go and do the what I call a holistic 4P push against the business. And that, that's just a practical limitation. Um, and P meaning like? Product. Placement. Placement, you know, which is your your retailers, um, but also where in the store you are. And then there's uh, pricing strategy, obviously, and then this murky world of promotion promo right? yeah yeah i want and, and promo yeah. here means really when i look at promotion i'm looking at non-pricing related tricks um that are either inside the store trade marketing or what's much more interesting to me is out of store uh, marketing and the out of store marketing on is interesting because a lot of people um, especially in your situation allison they don't have the horsepower they don't have the internal person power to go do a lot of that out of store stuff um, whereas I have other clients who, for whatever reason, because of, you know, their funding situation, you know, they have four or five people on their team, even when they're small. And so they were out, I have a kombucha client in St. Petersburg and they've been pounding the streets for five years straight. I think also, you know, I mean, a lot of what I've learned on this is, you know, if I had a, a refrigerated like beverage, I'd be at music fairs or I'd yeah, it's be, a lot easier you know, to promote it, isn't right? It? Like yeah. sauce, like, <laughs> Hey, <laughs> no, well, I think this, no, I think, somewhere, no, I think category know? is key. Allison. I think that what I help people understand is what their limitations are as well. You know, and I, I mean, I'll give you a funny example. There's a, there's a flatbread brand. I won't mention which one, but that, that tried to copy the kind playbook. This is not an early stage company, so don't worry. I don't. I, know, I don't even. Know, I like. I know. It's I'm, nobody you know, I'm, and it's nobody up and coming. I'm not it's guessing. A, it, but it's a flatbread brand, and they tried to use the kind field marketing method. Right. And they spent give a, it away, give it away, an obscene amount right. of money <laughs> on a field marketing program. But it's a it's a fucking flatbread. It's not. It's an. It's it's like, it's an ingredient. It wasn't even very interesting. And this is a brand from the '90s, so like the formulation is old and blah blah blah. Anyways. I mean, it's the brand is stable, but it's not really going anywhere. Anyways, the point is, it it itself is just a carrier device, right? Like, would would Mission Tortilla? Well, maybe they would, but that's probably a bad example. But I mean, like a tortilla brand, I don't know what you're going to get at a field market, right? Yes, no, it makes sense, and I think what you're saying is like this. It it all comes back to like knowing who your people are, knowing why they like you leaning hard into that. And you're right. Like we are, we are planning our marketing calendar for 2020 right now. And we, we know which kind of sampling events work for us and which are really going to not give us any return based on basically, you know, who, who we're, who we're trying to speak to. And that all goes back to some sort of analysis about yourself, which you know, none Sampling of this Sampling to is... brain dead buyers at fancy food right. not working. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Like some of the trade Talk about, shows I always, really I, work. I find that show really hilarious because there's so few people there walking the booths who would have any appreciation for what you sell. Yes. Well, fortunately for us, that is where we met like, <laughs> Fresh Direct and Whole Foods. So I can't, I have a lot of love for fancy food. Um, but 
Okay, so we're going to wrap up in a couple minutes. Um, I guess you have a, a lot of advice, but I'd love sort of if you had to sum it all up or like just your best advice or where you've seen so many brands go wrong and you'd like to prevent us from having that, you know, getting caught in the death funnel, what would be like two things or three that you would say like, you need to do this now, brands? Oh, man, and it has to apply to everybody. That's a tough one. So I, I would say if you're in that early ramp, uh, part of the ramp, I think uh, you need to find, I think you do need to find a co-founder or somebody to share the, the labor burden. And that has to be somebody who's not, who's willing to not make any money. That's one. The second one is I think, uh, if you know, if I only had to pick one other one, I would say you slow down um so it's not so much that you're you're slowing down your sales rate but it is slowing down your ambitions to blow the thing out so to speak which is um, hard with you know i see money being the way well it is it yeah. is when you're financially sucking wind and that's why my third piece of advice which you didn't ask for no i did i'll give it anyways mm -hmm. is that I, I don't think people want to get into cpg if you don't without a financial cushion <laughs> right if you are if you're in a position not to have an income and this is what you know people right. I, I, right. that's what i mean this all the time for you can't you're not gonna have an income for two to three years at at least right or more yeah. i mean unless you come out of the gate with like a lot of early funding which i just i don't know that has its downside too and i don't know that they make uh, it look I, like I it's I think easy. too much raise, too much fundraising in the first million is very dangerous. A couple hundred thousand—that's one thing. You start, but I have seen so many disasters where people got corporate VC money too early, and it's like you don't—you're not wise enough to know what the hell to do with it. That's the problem. So that's so, good advice. I, yeah, I mean, I think being more patient, but also knowing, knowing if this is not your thing as early as possible. Again, some of that has to do with the financial cushioning because I, I can tell you the one thing you do not want to do is get to half a million and then realize that, oh, to survive, I now need to assign myself a salary out of my gross profits because you'll be sucking all the oxygen uh, for reinvestment out of your business. Yep. You know? I know it's hard because I, you know, I started this to right. get people, to give people good advice so that they could build things. It's, you know, it's all about building and it's all about like sharing everything that I've learned. And I feel bad saying don't do it if X, Y, Z, but I think people really do underestimate the, you know, the money and the time and, and, and I, all the yeah, I mean, I talked to a ton, a lots of people and I have people call me um, quite frequently at all mostly on the early side of things. And I, I've told a few people, I just don't feel like this is right for you. I can figure it out in 15 minutes, usually. All right, well, um, we're not going to have that And part of it is they're asking, they're asking, <laughs> well, they're asking questions that are, they betray way too much risk aversion. Right, yes. Yeah, understood. And I mean, I've said it to one person. I said, if you, if you don't have $200,000 in liquid cash, you want to throw down a toilet, I don't know why you would start this. Right. You know, I mean, I, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, and it, and understood. You don't want to mortgage your house no, to do that. No. Okay. Tell me about your book in the last minute. Um, what's happening? Where can people find you? Where can people find all of this good advice? And give us all of like the places to look. So the book should be coming out in late December. It's still on track um, for the very end of December. It may come out a little early if I can move a few things around. 
It's called Ramping Your Brand. Um, if you want to learn more, you go to rampingyourbrand.com. And there's a lovely description of the book. You can sign up to get promos and sneak peeks to um, the book has four parts. And the first is really about all about product design and how, and how to think about designing a product that can command a premium price. The second part is about how to set up this experiment that we've been talking about on this podcast, um, sort of a managed experiment in the early years where you learn about your consumer, you learn what's working, what's not. You really get immersed in your category. Um, and then the third part is about fine-tuning this conversion playbook where you're bringing in triers and they call them light buyers, and then you're converting them into medium to heavy users or habitual, I call habitual users. And the fourth part, the sexy part, is some of my tips on how to accelerate these kinds of businesses once you get up to seven figures. Um, and this this comes out of that research that I did at the Harbin Group. So those are, um, you know, everyone will be racing to that part, I'm sure. Yeah, but for they, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but the reality is if you don't do the stuff in the beginning, I mean, I've seen it again and again. It, it's in today's marketplace with brokers and other things, and if, especially if you're actually a good salesperson, you can you can fire out a kind of half-assed thing to $5 million. It It's not as hard as it used to be. That's actually what worries me most, Allison, is that there's actually fewer constraints. Yep. No, I, I hear you. Than that 20 years sense. ago. Yep. No, it makes sense. It's easier. So it, the, it's, it, yeah, which is not good ultimately for us. Well, I think it's, it's a, it becomes a real trap for people new to the industry right. who aren't networking. Yep. Makes sense. They're not networking with the right folks, <laughs> shall I say. And so, James, if people want to find you, they can go to rampingyourbrand.com or they can go to premiumgrowthsolutions.com. That's um, correct. I have a founder's resource page on my main corporate site, and that has a bunch of free stuff, some books to read, uh, a free webinar and mistakes, um, has a couple paid webinars and a paid course as well. I'm adding some courses here over the next year uh, so that people can learn to do some of the analytics themselves because I think they really need to. The more analytically savvy you get, the better it's going to be in your retail buyer negotiations. And that can often be the difference between accelerating early, you know, because you got to, you got to, the buyers are jaded, man. <laughs> so it makes sense. All right, James, thank you so much for coming on in the sauce. It was a great um, conversation. I love actually talking to you in person because I, I feel like I, I, it's always a one way conversation. So this was fun to be able to like, ask questions to to you know the guru um and best of luck with the book i'm sure it's going to be a huge success and i guess i'll see you at expo west absolutely i will be at fancy food as well all right um i won't so but thank you for having me allison this was great (laughs) my pleasure and matt thank you so much for being engineer extraordinaire as always um and i'll be back next week with another episode of in the sauce In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.